Hello and welcome to the week seven edition of Flight Deck, an inside look at the New York Jets. I'm your host, Rich Samini. I cover the Jets for ESPN. I hope you enjoyed your bye week. I know I did. I got a chance to spend some time with family and friends, watched a little football. It was actually a productive bye weekend for the Jets. If you're already studying the 22 draft, which, to be quite honest, might not be a bad thing considering their 1-4 and four start, you know that the Seahawks and Panthers lost. The Jets own Seattle's first-round pick because of the Jamal Adams trade, and they own Carolina's second-rounder because of the Sam Darnold trade. So a couple of small victories for the Jets on their weekend off. But now we're back to football, and the Jets have to prepare for a trip to Foxborough, which is never easy, as we know. In our second segment, we'll talk to ESPN's NFL Nation Patriots reporter, Mike Reese, a terrific journalist and a good friend. Mike has covered the entire Patriots dynasty, even pre-dynasty, and he saw a very un-Patriots-like performance on Sunday in their loss to the Cowboys. Dak Prescott threw for 445 yards, the most ever ever allowed by a Bill Belichick coach defense with the Patriots. Now, this might be the stat of the year. Check this out. Belichick has coached 619 games in his career, either as a head coach or defensive coordinator. The 567 by the Cowboys total yards was the most allowed in any of those games. 619. That is truly, truly stunning. Now, as, a, as an aside for Jet fans, his previous high came in 1998, the Jets opener that year. Belichick was their defensive coordinator and facing Steve Brown, Steve Young and the 49ers. The Jets allowed 557 and also lost in over, overtime. Older Jet fans will remember that game. That's when it ended on that crazy Garrison Hurst 96-yard run in overtime. And just a quick story. I actually got to spend some time with Belichick during the run-up to that game. It was a one-on-one film session, which was really cool. We did it at the team hotel in Chicago on the morning of the final preseason game, kind of a clandestine meeting without Bill Parcells' knowledge, which Belichick found very amusing at the time. And I can tell you, he was really dialed into the 49ers even then. So to give up 557 in that game, I'm sure it was extremely disappointing, just like giving up 567 to the to the Cowboys just had to be crushing for those guys. But I digress. The main storyline this week is the Jets offense, specifically the inability to generate any sort of production early in the game. The Jets have failed to score a first quarter point in five straight games. And if it happens again on Sunday, They'll be the first team since the 2008 Lions to start a season with zero points in six straight first quarters. And you know what happened to that Lions team. 0-16. So on Monday, Robert Sala told us that they did a deep dive into their first quarter struggles over the bye week. He said they're going to make some subtle changes with regard to the practice schedule. And of course, he wouldn't give specifics because no coach ever gives specifics. Um, You know, I've I've seen this sort of thing before. I think what coaches typically do when they tweak their practice schedule is they'll start with an 11 on 11 period instead of easing in with individual and, you know, positional drills. They'll go right into a very competitive period. It's supposed to get the blood racing a little earlier, get their body clocks on a different time. 
And he said he also looked at Zach Wilson's quarter-by-quarter splits. They're analyzing everything he does well and what he doesn't do well. Look, I could tell you that stuff. I know what he does well. I could read my next-gen stats. It's a matter of actually going out and fixing it. So I have a few suggestions here. Some Samini suggestions to get the Jets untracked on offense, get them off to faster starts. And here we go. Seven suggestions. Number one, move move Mike LaFleur to the coach's booth. He's got too much going on on the sideline. He's trying to coach Wilson and call the plays. That would be difficult for an experienced coach, let alone a first-time coordinator. So move him upstairs. Let Matt Cavanaugh be Wilson's sounding board on the sideline. Sala has told us that Wilson feels comfortable with LaFleur at his side. At his side, But you know what? It's not working. You hired Kavanaugh for a reason to replace the, the late Greg Knapp. Let him do his job. Would also give LaFleur a different vantage point. Hey, it can't get any worse, right? Number two, I'd like to see them use more 11 personnel. Now, that's one back, one tight end, and three wide receivers. The obvious reason is their receivers are better than their tight ends. So I want more receivers on the field. This is what you call playing to your strength or getting your best players on the field. Sounds simple, right? I have evidence to support it, of course. Statistically, the Jets average 4.4 per rush out of 11 personnel and only 3.6 out of 12 personnel, which was two tight ends. They're in 12 personnel about 37% of the time on all downs and 59% in 11 personnel. I'd like to see more 11. That's the way to go. Three receivers, you're more effective running and passing out of that grouping, so use it more often. Third, we know their running game is for crap, especially in short yardage. Why not use a sixth offensive lineman in short yardage? The Jets have yet to use an extra lineman for blocking, which to me is just weird. Number four, I'd like to see a little more of Tevin Coleman. Yeah, I know, I know. Getting Michael Carter experience is important for the big picture. But Coleman, he he hits the hole quickly. There's no wasted movement. And he knows what he's doing in this system. Given the shortcomings of the offensive line, I think Coleman's running style would help. You know, he knows how to read defenses and he can hit the hole and head up field. That's exactly what you want in this running scheme. He He just might be their fastest back. So... If it costs Carter some carries, so be it. Give Coleman more carries. Number five, and while we're on the subject here, they need commitment, more commitment to the running game. They're a little too passer happy early in games. They don't need to be run dominant. They just need to be efficient. In this offense, the run action and the pass action have to mirror each other. That keeps the defense off balance. Run with efficiency, make it look the same, and that way you can influence the second-level defenders and give Wilson defined reads off run action so he can drive the ball when he hits his back foot. That's why they have to be more committed to the running game. Six, you got to be more balanced in the passing attack. I think they're too reliant on Corey Davis. And let's be honest, Davis has been all or nothing so far. He's got more drops. Five, then touchdowns, three. Now, this could be a slippery slope because you don't want Wilson to be pre-programmed. You force balls to certain receivers. It's like I laugh when I hear people say, oh, he's got to get the ball to Elijah Moore. People, Wilson is a rookie. 
His mind is swimming right now. Let him make the reads and throw to the open guy. It's on the coaches to create situations that allow him to be more balanced in a passing offense. Don't put that on the kid. Just create a more balanced passing attack that just doesn't run through Corey Davis. And number seven, the last reason, is Wilson himself. I'd try to create a quicker tempo. He seems to do better when things are up-tempo, a little helter-skelter, but you can't live in that world. It has to be at the right time, well-timed. When you go to tempo, I'd try more throws on first down. Right now, they're too predictable on first down. I'd try some quick three-stop, three-step drop throws, more slants, more bubble screens. In other words, safer throws to get some early completion. He's a rhythm quarterback. You got to do what you can to get him in a rhythm early in these games. It's just impossible to ask this team to play catch up every single week. You got to score in the first quarter. And now we're joined by a good friend, a terrific journalist, and one of the uh, staples at ESPN's NFL Nation. Of course, I'm talking about Mike Reese, our Patriots reporter. He's been covering the Patriots for a long, long time, actually pre-Dynasty, 1997. Worked for the Metro West Daily News, the Boston Globe, and joined ESPN in 2009. Mike, thank you so much for taking the time. Cousin Rich. Great yes. to be with you. That's what I like to say, right? We go way yeah, back. Yeah, we've known each other so long that we're like family members now. We, uh, we're cousins, so to speak. I love it. It's what happened. You have a Jet writer and a Patriot writer. We cross paths a couple of times a year, and uh, this is great. But, but, you know, I want to talk about your career and your background a little bit, but I just want to jump into some quick Patriots. I want you to take the temperature for me, Mike, in, in New England right now. I mean, my gosh, the Patriots are 2-4. and four. They're 0-4 at home, which is to me, mind-boggling. Their defense just gave up nearly 600 yards, uh, which is shocking. What's the mood in New England among the fan base? Well, a little bit of a mix, Rich. You know, so like short-term, sort of in the moment, I would say the temperature is some frustration, right? Like they've had opportunities to win some of these games, and they're just not making the plays to do that, right? And their two wins are over the Jets and the Texans. So they're sort of beating the teams that you'd think they would and losing to some that, yeah, you'd say, yeah, you'd like to think they would beat them. So wow. that's sort of the short-term outlook. The, the bigger picture is some promise because they feel like they've hit with the quarterback, Mac mm -hmm. Jones. So I think it's almost like 1993 all over again when Drew Bledsoe came in as the top pick. You knew it might take a little time, but you felt like with the quarterback, you have a chance. Interesting. That's a really good comparison with, with Drew. And I think they what, went six and 10 his first year or, and then the second year they hit, right. They made the playoffs under Parcells the second year. Um, so that's an interesting comparison. The thing I'm so curious about and like a lot of fans across the country, we're, we're Patriot watchers, you know, because they have so many intriguing personalities with, Brady having so much success in Tampa, the Super Bowl, and of course he's off to a great start this year, and, and the Patriots struggling now. What's the feeling towards Belichick? Has it switched at all over the last year or so, or is he still the deity in New England that can do no wrong? <laughs> they have the saying, in Bill we trust, right? And right. That, that was what they would always say, Rich, whenever there was some level of adversity around the team. And, you know, I guess it depends where you look. 
you know, and maybe it's not going to be a surprise when you hear me say this, but sometimes I check my Twitter mentions and I'd say, wow, and Bill, we in Bill, we trust is dead. You know, like, I mean, they're like, for example, this last game, they, they lose to the Cowboys in overtime and people questioning, you know, why he sat on the ball at the end of the second quarter, you know, uh, had, had a chance with about a minute and a half left, no timeouts at their own 25. And they took the ball out of Mac Jones hands. They kneeled on it uh, or in overtime, you know, fourth and three from their own 43, like, do you go for it there? You know, and some people would say the old Belichick wouldn't care. You know, he would go for it knowing that his defense was gassed um, and he punted it away and they lose. So I think I don't want to say there's more scrutiny on the decisions, Rich, but I think there are people that want to jump on the fact that without Brady, are we seeing, um, you know, different results? And I think we have to let that unfold in, in all fairness. Um, got a rookie quarterback, a new team, right? We're six games in. Um, so it's a developing storyline, I would say. I was actually listening on the radio uh, to the, and I was shocked with a minute and a half left at the end of the first half that, you know, they just, you know, took a knee and let it, let it play out. But it's different. When you have Tom Brady, you can, you can uh, walk the tightrope, you know, because you have the best of all time. And, and I don't know, you think he's coaching too conservatively with the rookie or just about the right touch, knowing that he has such an inexperienced quarterback. Rich, this is awesome discussion. Like I actually, this is the stuff that fires me up, right? Mm -hmm. Because in that, in this game, you could say he coached it too conservatively, but if you go back to three games this season with Mac Jones, mm -hmm. almost the same situation, he wasn't conservative. So your game, Patriots, Jets, our game, week two, mm -hmm. Patriots ball at their own 35, two minutes left. Mac drives him to a field goal. The next week against the Saints, Patriots have the ball at their own 25. 144 left till halftime. Mac drives him to a field goal. And then the week before against the Texans, ball at their own 24-yard line, 131 until halftime. Oh. Mac drives him to a field goal. He was three for three in those situations. So yeah. Bill made the decision, Rich, that like. None of that mattered. It was this specific game, and they had a block punt. Mac was crunched on a strip sack, or a, I don't know if you'd even call it a strip sack. I mean, it was like a mauling, you know, on the two drives prior. So that might have been part of his thinking. I don't think he's been too conservative based on the history I just told you, but he was conservative in that situation. Yeah, very interesting. Do you... Do you, uh, I'd like to say you've seen a lot of rookie quarterbacks come and go over the years, but you haven't because you've had one, you know, just hallmark quarterback. What do you think of Mac Jones? Do you think he's got the goods to be I do. the kind of quarterback they think he'll be? I do. Rich, he's further along than, than I think they even probably envisioned he would be at this time. And, and to me, that goes back to what we talked about right at the start. You know, like Drew Bledsoe came in 1993 and you said, you know what, there's hope. We got a chance now. I think the worst place you can be is probably where the Patriots were last year, right? I mean, they had Cam and they were making the best of the situation, but you also knew that Cam was a short-term situation until they found the next guy. And I think when we look back on this, um, we're going to see that they were fortunate that Mac came out in a year with four other good quarterbacks, you know, that pushed him down to them at 15. You don't usually, not usually in position 
you know, to get a guy like that, unless you're sort of really coming off hard times. Yeah, the Jets were lucky in 2000. They got Chad Pennington in the middle of the first rounds, which which is unusual. And I think he is very similar to Mac Jones in terms of, you know, intelligence and tangibles. Maybe not the greatest arm, but good enough. And I see him. I see Mac Jones as a guy who's really makes good decisions. He's so well coached. It seems like I mean, his completion percentage is in the middle of the leagues, you know, which is which is for a rookie pretty good. I mean, I think Jet fans would take that right now from Zach Wilson. Yeah. And you mentioned Chad Pennington. It's actually so great because um, here's the stat, Rich. Mac had 70 percent or better completion percentage in four of his first five starts. The only two other quarterbacks had done that in history. Chad Pennington mm-hmm. was a great comparison you just made. And Dak Prescott. It's I pretty, good. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty, pretty good company, you know, to keep. And I, so I think the comparison is a good one. How stunned were you when they released Cam Newton? Yeah, you're always surprised when it happens, Rich. And yeah. I have to hold myself accountable. You know, we do our, you know, you do your 53-man oh, roster projections. Sure. Yeah. I did. I did it. And... I felt like Mac was coming on at the time, Rich. Like, so it didn't surprise me that he won the job. Like, I actually thought if you based it on the performance of what we saw, he, in my view, he had clearly outplayed and outpracticed Cam. But I just thought, I just thought to myself, like, yeah, they'll probably give it a little more time. You know, it seemed like, it seemed like that was the way it was heading, you know, or at least that's what I, I, maybe I was just my gut. So, you know, when, when that decision is made, there's always a little bit of a surprise because even if they gave the job to Mac, I was thinking, well, maybe Cam is sort of still here, yeah. right? And then you look at it backwards and it sort of makes sense. Hard to keep a guy like that around with that personality and aura, I guess. And Bill, we trust, right? That's what the <laughs> that, that, that's one of those cases where you really have to trust that he's making the right decision. And more often than not, clearly he makes the right decision. I mean, his resume speaks for itself, but but Mike, the, I can't believe they give up that many yards to Dallas. What's not clicking for the Patriots right now? It's because it's some of these numbers are just, you know, make my head spin. So so the yards, it's this game actually reminded me of an old Peyton Manning game. Like you give up a lot of yards, but you come up, you try to come up with plays in the red zone, you know, fourth down stop or whatever. Like, so to me, um, I gotta give credit to Dak Rich. Like like he was really, really good in this game, like Peyton Manning level good. Like when I say that um, and, and honestly, Rich, like the Patriots are one defensive play away from winning. Like they had a fourth and four right. in, the, in the fourth quarter. And like Dak makes this a really tough throw to the sideline. Cedric Wilson, who's a receiver, quite honestly, Rich, I didn't know much about mm-hmm. makes a great catch. Like they don't make that play Patriots win. And the context of our discussion may be a little different. So to answer the question, what's not clicking? I mean, I, I do have to give credit to Dak, but I would say the secondary and the depth. Like we, Stefan Gilmore, not here anymore and wouldn't have been available for this game, you know, due to, due to the injury. But they only dressed like I think eight DBs for this game against that passing offense. Like their depth in the secondary would be probably if I had to start somewhere would be the, the primary concern. That'll create an interesting matchup because Zach Wilson obviously has been having some turnover issues. He leads the league with nine picks. And yet the best way to attack the Patriots might be through the air. And I don't think the Jets really want to do that. I think they want to protect Zach and try to run the ball. So that'll be an interesting conundrum for the Jets 
on Sunday. Um, Mike, I just want to, the Patriots obviously have dominated this rivalry. They've won 11 in a row, and I think it's 19 out of 21, if I'm not mistaken, since the playoff game. What do the Patriots, players over the years, not just this year, but over the years, what do they think of the Jets? What is their perception of, of the team they just seem to dominate every year? So, so Rich, I would say, I, I go back to like the early years of the Patriots on this one, because I think it was like, when you asked the question, like my thought went to like the Teddy Brewskis, you know, mm-hmm. and um, the Willie McGinnis, the Ty Laws, like the people who were around when the Patriots-Jets rivalry was probably at its peak. Parcells, Belichick, back, forth. You had guys that had played for the Jets that came to the Patriots and vice versa, Patriots to the Jets, Curtis Martin. So like, so Rich, that, that, so that's where my, my thoughts initially went, you know, with the question. And I think my answer to it would be those who were around at that time thought about the Jets as the enemy because they saw how much it meant to Bill Belichick to beat them. That to me is probably the best answer, you know, that I can give because I honestly don't, I don't know about today's players. Like if they really view it that way, do you know what I mean? Like the rivalry maybe isn't as hot. It isn't as hot. Let's be honest. As no, it was, yeah. you know? So I think that's probably my, my biggest takeaway on that. Yeah. I think Brady probably harbored some of those feelings, you know, cause I don't think, Let's face it, I don't think he really liked the Jets at all. He's take a couple of shots at him over the years. So now that he's gone, you know, the faces have changed. So maybe it's lost a little of that luster. Uh, what's it like covering a dynasty? Huh. <laughs> I would not know the I don't know. I don't know. So I'm asking you, you it's one of the great sports dynasties in the history of sports. We may not see anything like it again, certainly in the NFL. What's it like? You were you had a front row seat. For all of it. Yeah. Well, I would say a gift, first of all, Rich, right? Like, I mean, that's the stuff you you got you go can only hope for when you're in our position, right? Mm-hmm. So that I'd start there. Um, and I maybe answer lightheartedly, like mm-hmm. it takes a lot of mental and physical stamina because your seasons are so much longer. Right. Right. Like, like you joke. I mean, I would I joke about it, but when we get to the start of training camp in July. Like we plan a family vacation for mid to late February. Right. So like last season, when the Patriots were eliminated in mid-December, it was like I had found two months of my life <laughs> that, that never, you know, that, that seldom existed in the past. Right. Does that make sense? I, you were in my world, you know, for, you know, for the first time in, in a long time, you were in my world. And I mean, when you add up how many extra games you've covered, cause you're covering three or four postseason games every year. So it's like you've covered many, like a few extra seasons probably when you, when you add it up. Yeah. And, and I think, and then I think if you go deeper to the stuff that maybe is more compelling to people listening, like the personalities and the ego, and the excellence of probably, I would say, the pillars of the dynasty. Um, when you talk about the owner, Robert Kraft, the coach, Bill Belichick, the quarterback, Tom Brady, how do all those pieces, you know, fit together? I think when we think about dynasties, right? Like, I mean, I think about 49ers, Cowboys. I mean, it's a lot of ways it was the same stuff. It was Bill Walsh, Joe Montana, Eddie DeBartolo, 
right? Cowboys, yep. Jerry Jones, Jimmy Johnson, Troy Aikman, right? Like, I mean, it's, yeah. I think, I think that's a big part of this discussion too. Yeah. And, and it, it's a, it brings me to a great question. I was just wondering, so Jet fans and, and fans in general see Belichick and when Brady was there, they saw Brady and they're so scripted in their press conferences. You know, they're, they're very, very rarely candid, especially with Belichick. You know, sometimes he's so monotone. But I'm wondering, having been around the team for so long, could you share maybe a moment where they they let down their guard? You know, they're not in front of the camera, uh, maybe a favorite Brady moment or a Belichick moment that that the rest of us don't get to see where maybe you did and, and could shed, you know, show them in a different light. Yeah, definitely. I mean, so many, Rich. And I guess the one that just popped into my head, I'll just take the one at the top of the list, um, was with Brady. And I it was, I'm going to say it was December 24th. So it was Christmas Eve. And the Patriots had played a game the day before on the 23rd. And so it's a holiday week. Everything's a little different. And I had my kids with me at the stadium the day after the, the game, because it was Christmas Eve, they didn't have school. And we were walking into the stadium to do like a taped television segment. So I, I drive a, a Honda Odyssey minivan. So I sort of park the van over, you know, I get the kids out and we're walking toward the stadium. And we just happen to be in the area where like the players drive in. And uh, this car with like tinted windows and the shiniest door handles that you'd ever imagine, like comes purring up rich. Like you can't even really hear it. And it just sort of slows down, you know, right as um, I got my kids by my side. I say, hey, let's move over to the side here. And the window rolls down and Tom peeks his head over and says, what's up, kids? And like my daughter and son, who at the time, I'm going to say were probably nine and six, mm-hmm. didn't really know what, like, they were like, like, who is this? Like, they didn't really know. You didn't have the jersey on, you know. And I, and I say to him, it's Tom, Tom Brady. And I thought, oh, hi. And he just starts talking to him, Rich. Like, wow. hey, hey, what, what are you looking forward to getting for Christmas? You know, what, what, what sports do you like? You know, and we're having this conversation because his kids are the same age. Right. And and it was like, I love to share that story for two reasons. One, it's, you know, it shows like he's human, right? This right. Is human. But I also like to tell my kids, like, it's not just about what these players do on the field. Like, you want to treat people with kindness and respect. Right. Mm. And here's arguably the greatest to ever do it. And he's rolling down his window. He doesn't have to do it. We wouldn't even have known who it was, Rich. Right. You know? And and he hasn't he's taking an interest in you. Like that's a kind person. Yeah. Well, that tells me a lot about Tom Brady. Um a lot of superstars may have like just buzzed right by you. And all you would have seen is the the shiny door handles, you know, and you're like, wow, who's that? You know. So that that's a really cool story. And um you gotta write a book someday, Mike, because I'm sure you got a million of those and you've covered covered so much of it. Uh tell me your favorite Bill Belichick, not your favorite. Let me rephrase that. Your most memorable Bill Belichick press conference. Okay. So, so can I, I mean, there's so many of them, Rich, yeah. right? Like, yeah. So, so I might take you on a little diversion because I mean, there's, because I want a story that really resonates for the listeners. Mm-hmm. So, so I will say like the early year press conferences, I liked a lot. 
mm-hmm. because it was di- it was different time. It was pre-social media. We could have more dialogues that I felt like were sacred, if that makes sense, you yeah. know, without sort of being put out there mm-hmm. literally as they happen, right? Yeah. He used to do like trivia Fridays with us, Rich. Yeah. Hey, it's it's Friday. Let me throw you out a trivia question, you know, and then we would, as I recall it, we would talk about it, you know, and it would lead to stories about whatever the trivia question was, you know. So so that's the first thing that comes to mind. But but actually, there was a moment like unscripted that stands out that I loved and I wish we could do more of it these days. And I sort of, you know, sound like an old man, right? Like, Oh, the old days. Right. Yeah. But, but it was 2006 Patriots win at the chargers in the playoffs. It was the game where Troy Brown ripped the ball away from Marlon McCree. No one thought they would win. LaDainian Tomlinson was all upset, all that stuff. I remember that. And rich after the game, yeah, like we could get closer to the, players and coaches at that time. And I just remember walking with Bill from like the field to the locker room, which now that I think about it, it's just like one of these stunning things that just would never happen. Right. Right. And he was saying how proud he was of the team, you know, and it was just so real. Like he was so in the moment with a reporter, right? Like, and so those are the things that, just come to my mind off the top of my head where I'm like, if I had to make a list of things of Belichick moments, like that was one that just was unforgettable to me. Yeah. We live in such a different world now. Like you said, every, every time he utters a word, it's recorded, it's streamed live, you know, on their website. And it's the same with every coach in the league. And I remember when Parcells was coaching the jets, we did the same thing. We had a trivia Friday after the cameras were off, we put away our tape recorders and Bill would start asking us trivia questions because he was always in a good mood on Friday. You know, last, you know, game plan is done pretty much the haze in the barn. And so one day he called on me. It was like, you know, you're sitting in class and you don't want to get called on. So he called on me and, and it, he loved baseball. And he asked me, he goes, tell me the exact width of home plate. <laughs> and, and I consider myself a knowledgeable baseball person and he totally stumped me. And, you know, I think I might've guessed like 20 inches or 22 inches. And he goes, you're wrong. It's 17 inches. And, uh, I didn't know that. And to this day, I know it now. And that, yeah. it, those were in those days you could do stuff like that. Now, eh, not so much. It's a little, and, a little more structured. And Rich, it's so fun to reflect on that because I had two thoughts. People need to understand this was before the day that you might be able to look down on your smartphone and type in a quick, hey, what's the width of home plate? Yeah. Or be like, hey, Alexa, what's the width of home plate? Right. Like, like my my son was doing his homework yesterday and I caught him asking the Alexa, hey, what's the, you know, some math problem. I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Whoa, yeah. we can't do that. <laughs> yeah, they didn't have to worry about tweeting their answers back then. You know, everything. It was it was just a little different thing. But, you know, life moves on. And, That's right. and this is the world we're in now. And it's a little different. But it's it's still it's still Jets Patriots. It's it's still fun. I still enjoy the trips up to Foxborough and uh, missed it last year. So uh, looking forward to getting back up there this year. I think probably the, I'm going to probably pick the Patriots this week. Uh, I can't imagine them going 0 5 at home. What is what is your early take on that? I think I'd pick the Patriots, Rich. You know, I yeah. think one thing one thing that I would say could give the Jets some hope 
is that the Patriots have played a little bit down, you know, mm. to the level of their competition. So they rise up and play well against Tom Brady in Tampa. They rise up and play competitive. And honestly, Rich could have beaten Dak and the Cowboys, you know, um, some of these other teams, like they lost to Miami in the opener. I mean, look at Miami now. That doesn't doesn't look great, right? Um, lost to the Saints. Um, so, you know, to me, if you're the Jets and you're looking at it, say maybe we're catching the Patriots at a good time, they haven't shown that they can really bury a team that they should bury. And the other factor maybe that helps the Jets, uh, they are rested. They are coming off a bye week. The Patriots' defense just played a very exhausting game. They were on the field for a, a ton of plays. So maybe that has some factor. So we'll find out on Sunday. And uh, Mike, Mike Reese, thank you so much, my colleague from ESPN's NFL Nation, um, a, a fantastic journalist. He's chronicled the Patriots every step of the way. No one does it better than Mike. And I can't thank you enough for being here, cuz. Thanks so much. I love it, cousin Rich. And I got a good weather forecast for you as we talk right now. It looks sunny, 55, no precipitation. So should be should be a perfect sort of fall day that we look forward to at this time of year. Outstanding. Looking forward to it. Thanks so much, Mike. Thanks, Rich. And it's Twitter time. A lot of questions this week on the trading deadline, which, if you're not familiar with that, is November 2nd. Two more games before we get to that point, before the Jets have to make some decisions. I do think they will be sellers. I do not see them being buyers. They probably will be one in six at the deadline. So, uh, you know, possibly, you know, two and five at the deadline. Either way, they're out of contention. A lot of questions uh, about uh, Marcus May and Jamison Crowder. So I'll group it into one question. A lot of people wondering what they could get for each guy. Probably not much for Crowder because he's in the final year of his contract. Uh, Still a productive slot receiver. I think there are teams that could use him. So I'm thinking maybe a sixth or seventh round pick in in the 22 draft. Marcus May is in the same boat. He's in the last year of his contract. You know, he is, you know, a, a good player. Maybe you can get a five in the 22 draft. I think the possible suspension with those pending DUI charges clouds his future a bit. And, uh, you know, he also has a much bigger contract. Going to have a, a roughly five to six million left on his contract at the trading deadline. So that's a lot for a team to pick up. And teams uh, won't be willing to give up uh, maybe his true value. So maybe a five there. I think if you traded Denzel Mims, you'd probably get more just because he's got two years left at a team-friendly salary. So maybe you can get more. But as I've said in previous podcasts, I do not think the Jets are trading Denzel Mims. Okay, we have a question from at Greg Romano 9. Any update on Makai Becton? Yes, uh, right now he is four weeks removed from knee surgery. This was originally a four- to eight-week uh, timetable. And I laughed at the four week part of that because there was no way a 370 pound man was coming off knee surgery. I don't care how minor the surgery was and be ready to go. Robert Sala said on Monday, he's still got a few weeks to go. So I'm looking at the eight week uh, period for him to return. I think that would be even optimistic. Now, Sala did say he's in quote, pretty good shape. Uh, I wonder about that. We know Becton's weight tends to fluctuate. So, uh, folks, I would not expect to see him for at least another month. 
Uh, next one from at Sports Fiend. Uh, do you think the Jets could be buyers at the trade deadline for a tight end or an interior lineman? And he mentions uh, O.J. Howard of Tampa Bay, who's a, a very talented player. I know the Jets were extremely high on him when he came out the draft a few years ago. Uh, but as I just said, I don't think the Jets are going to be buyers. I think O.J. Howard would be great in this offense. But I just really wonder, A, he's in the last year of his contract. So it's a short-term rental that doesn't sound like Joe Douglas's speed. And secondly, you know, the time they get him up and going in the in the offense, which is completely different offense from what he's running with Bruce Arians, you know, there won't be many games left in the year. So I don't know how much that would help Zach Wilson. And then the fact that he's just a short-term rental, I don't think the Jets want to give up a future asset for that. So uh, long answer short, uh, I do not think the Jets are going to be buyers. Uh, RB at the trading deadline. Next one from at Gang Green Palace. Should the Jets consider trading for Michael Thomas, the New Orleans wide receiver? No, I don't think that's going to happen. But I think the Saints should consider trading for Crowder or Mims. They need wide receivers. Um, Crowder is a polished guy. He can step right in. Mims, you know, more of a long-term project. But that wouldn't surprise me if the Saints come knocking and looking for some receivers from the Jets. Next one from at Boy Green 25 Would trading away Marcus May and Jamal Adams in back-to-back years have a negative impact on the locker room and or perception around the league for future free agents? Well, I, I think it it says this. Here's my interpretation of that. Uh, I think it it tells the so-called big names and high draft picks on the key, on the team right now that you might not get a second contract. Now they did reward JFM, but let's face it, he came here with no fan fear. Fan fear. They got him off the scrap heap. He worked his way up, you know, and great for him. He got a big contract. May and Adams, uh, they were high draft picks. So I yes, I do think it creates an alarming perception. It's almost like the Jets would be a developmental league. You know, get drafted by the Jets, play well, and get traded away for a nice payday. Uh, you don't want that to be your reputation around the league. And uh, at some point, Joe, Joe Douglas has to reverse that trend. Next one from Matt Lewis Keefe, three. What's the Jets' future look like on the offensive line? There's been some improved play, but who's actually in the plans for the next two to five years? Becton and AVT seem like the only locks. All the others seem like short-term Band-Aids. I would agree with that. Uh, I think Becton and Elijah Vera Tucker, who is starting to play much better, are locks to be around for another couple of years. I think Connor McGovern, the center, he kind of falls into that borderline category. Uh, I mean, he's signed for another year, but his play has been somewhat pedestrian. You know, Morgan Moses is a free agent. Certainly Greg Van Roten won't be back. He's struggling this year. And George Fant is under contract for another year. I see him as more of a fallback. And there's no one really in the pipeline on the bench that you could say, oh, you know, this guy's got a bright future. So I, I do think the Jets need to address that in the draft next year, possibly drafting another offensive tackle to play opposite Mekhi Becton. And this one, this last question I really like, uh, it's from at Drew 6289088827. He's saying, Rich, there's so much talk about coaches, offensive coordinator, defensive coordinator. Who would you make who would who would make up your all-time Jets coaching staff? And he mentions a couple of names in a joking fashion. Uh, he'd love to know 
my all-time Jets coaching staff. So I'm very intrigued by this question. And here we go. My all-time Jet coaching staff. My coach, of course, my head coach would be Bill Parcells. He's in the Hall of Fame. Enough said. My defensive coordinator, another no-brainer, Bill Belichick. Now, that's pretty obvious. Um, my assistants on defense, I'm going to have Al Groh as my linebackers coach. I'm going to have Romeo Cornell as my D-line coach. And this one might surprise you, Todd Bowles as my DB coach. You will remember that Todd was the Jets DB coach in 2000. On offense, you know, the Jets have not had a lot of great offenses over the years, but I would go with uh, probably Charlie Weiss as my offensive coordinator. He was with the Jets in that 98 season. My O-line coach is, is a tie. Uh, such great respect for Bill Muir and Bill Callahan. Those two of the uh, all-time greats, I would have, I'd have co-coaches on the offensive line. At running back, I would go with Anthony Lynn. You know, he's now with Detroit after a stint as the Chargers head coach. Anthony Lynn was a great running backs coach for the Jets. And, you know, wide receivers and tight end, kind of up in the air there. I'm not sure who I'd go with. I'd probably go with Todd Haley as a receivers coach. Ken Wisenhunt would be my tight ends coach, two uh, guys who became head coaches in the NFL. And my special teams coach, of course, would be the, uh, you know, the kind of a legendary guy, Mike Westoff, who did such a fabulous job for the Jets on special teams for so many years. So that would, you give me that coaching staff and I'm going to get the best out of my players. That would be a really, really dynamic coaching staff. I would take that any day of the week. Let's talk about Sunday's game. In my opinion, it's all about Zach Wilson. This is his first rematch opportunity as an NFL quarterback, and we all know what happened the first time against the Patriots. Week two, four interceptions. Not only did he throw four interceptions, they were four interceptions within his first 10 attempts. He called it the worst game of his life. It was basically his version of the Sam Darnold ghost game. Not good. But this is an opportunity to get another look at a Bill Belichick coach defense. The coaches on the Jets, they always say Wilson is a guy who's extremely smart, who never makes the same mistake twice. Well, we're going to find out a lot about that. This is a very, very important step in this young quarterback's development. He's coming off a rough game against Atlanta, but he's had a bye week. He went home to Utah, met with his personal coach, John Beck, to go over some game film from the first five weeks. So you have to think he's going to be in a good place mentally. Uh, I really want to pick the Jets in this game. I'm a big believer in the benefits of the bye week. The Jets will be refreshed physically. And I think they did a self-scout. They took a hard look at some of their first quarter issues. You have to think they'll make some adjustments. However, the Patriots are 0-4 at home. I cannot see them going 0-5 at home with a loss to the Jets. Bill Belichick's team is making some uncharacteristic mistakes. But yet, as Mike Reese noted, they do play to their competition. They have had some, you know, they played extremely well against Tampa and lost. You know, they played a good game against Dallas and lost. And so I think one or two plays here and there, they could have a different record. So I'm going to pick the Patriots here 23-20. The Jets have lost 11 straight in this rivalry. Only once out of those 11 games have they scored more than 17 points. 
I do think they'll get over 17 this time, but just a tough spot for them on the road. I think them being physically refreshed will be offset by the Patriots' experience and absolute desperation to get a win. So that's why I'm going with Patriots 23, Jets 20. I want to thank our guest, Mike Reese, ESPN Patriots reporter, and of course, our producer, Jeff Scopin, for putting this all together. Rate us, subscribe. Please give us your feedback. We want to try to make this better. And we really appreciate you listening. And we'll talk to you next week on Flight Deck. Flight Deck.